Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, today we have a stellar cast of industry leaders with a big message for brands and marketers on the $9 billion Australian digital media supply chain. It's time for brands to step up and get into the detail. And that is coming from Nestle's Director of eBusiness, Strategy and Marketing, Martin Brown. Martin, who is one of today's panellists, is also Chair of the Australian Association of National Advertisers. Now, for some context on why it's now critical for brand owners to get serious, you may have seen the findings of a PwC ISBAR report out of the UK a few months ago, which tried to follow the digital money. Where advertisers' budgets went, who got what, and how much actually got to the intended audience via publishers and media. Now, just 51%, according to the report, ended up as working media in industry parlance, and the report also found 15% of advertisers' spend was lost in this thing called an unknown delta. For the Australian market in gross terms, my numbers say that equates to more than a billion mystery dollars. I'll be corrected on that in a few minutes, I'm sure. Now, there is some contention around the PwC report, and we'll cover some of that today. So joining Martin Brown from Nestle and the AANA is Amy Buchanan, CEO of OMD Australia, Dan Stinton, Australian Managing Director of The Guardian, and the esteemed chair of the IAB and CEO of Nine-Owned Pedestrian Group, Matt Rowley who together with the MFA and the AANA launched an updated set of digital guidelines a few weeks back called the Australian Digital Advertising Practices or ADAPS. Now, welcome to you all. Let's see if I can keep up with you on what's going on around achieving better transparency in this funky and sometimes mind-bending digital advertising system. Uh, first to you, Martin. Um, with this debate on the digital supply chain now in its perhaps its fourth year, uh, I think you think it's time for marketers and brands, not agencies and the rest of the supply chain, to get match fit and deeply understand what's going on in that complex labyrinth. Now, Martin, why should brands do this? What happens if they don't? Thanks, Paul. I think firstly, I'd say it's time for all players to step up and engage in driving transparency. But marketers um, arguably at this point have the most to learn and arguably the most to gain or lose based on whether or not they build their knowledge. Because this digital ecosystem is continuing to evolve very quickly. There are many choices that uh, marketers have got to balance cost and quality, and they need to understand their options to deliver ROI in this area of spend. And ultimately, that's what we all should be accountable for. There are absolute trade-offs on cost and quality, and they're gonna differ And the choices that you make are going to uh, uh, be different based on the size that you are as an advertiser and the resources available to you how you leverage data for more effective targeting and understanding how your content choices affect viewability is, is, is a purely a factor of knowledge and that can make a significant impact on your ROI. Mm -hmm. Critically, marketers and, and brand owners need to understand how to navigate the risk to brand safety. And that means you need to have a proactive tailored approach uh, to, to how you buy and how you measure. And you, you, you finally, you, you absolutely must understand your obligations to privacy, um, which is another issue and another aspect of, of digital advertising, which is evolving quickly. So lots of knowledge to build and, and 
if you don't build that knowledge, then it definitely places you in a pretty poor position to complain about poor outcomes afterwards. So lean in, build your knowledge and be part of working collaboratively to get the outcome you want. And so, Martin, your sense on that, though, is that marketers generally uh, are not there yet in, the, in terms of understanding how this whole supply chain, how the, me- the digital media system works in detail, they're not there? This ecosystem is complex, and I'd say as a generalisation, the marketing industry in Australia would seriously benefit from investing in building their knowledge. Amy Buchanan, I'd, I'd imagine you'd agree with Martin, but there is an elephant in the room here. Uh, marketers, uh, I think you you believe, can't make a lot of progress on this area if they separate the commercial discussion on things like agency fees and remuneration with driving higher quality, more transparent digital media choice and so on. Um, what's your take? Look, I think ADAPS aims to give a solid foundation across what the supply chain is and how it works. Um, and I'm so supportive of that. And I think a lot of our client base are on that journey. Um, the piece around transparency is key. And I think clients are leaning into that. I think as they build their knowledge, the, the piece that needs to be built out is that they need a commercial model that's sustainable for agencies to deliver to that. And there's a big gap in people's understanding of what that requires still. Um, we've had a, you know, a, quite a few instances where you get to the pointy end of a negotiation with a client in, in a new business pitch. Um, and you, they've pretty much told you you've got the right resourcing, but it's too expensive. And and if I'm at a point where I can't commercially and viably um, sustain sustain that structure for them, um, there, there's no way another agency can be doing that any cheaper. When you're talking about you know five FTEs at a certain cost, um, they have to be making money somewhere else. And if clients don't fundamentally understand that, then I think we're not talking. We're not talking about the two parts of the pie that need to be brought together. How might they be making money elsewhere then, Amy, if it's not through straight up fees and remuneration to an agency? What happens? I think, look, that's that's the whole sort of purpose of the understanding the supply chain is that there's different parts in that supply chain where margin can be added. And the ISBAR report re- re- talks to that delta of, you know, 51% in working media. The other 49% is going somewhere. So, um and that's by design. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, look, uh, our preferred model is 100% of our clients are on a fully disclosed model and know what they're paying, but they've also been willing to pay that. So uh, the clients that aren't paying it need to also be asking the question of where is the money going, but why is the money going there? Because there's a responsibility there as well. So let me put a, a premise to you, and is, is it possible then that some of those other ways that uh, that agencies get paid is through buying cheaper media and loading the CPMs, for instance? Is that a, is that a scenario? Yeah, it could be loading the CPM. It could be in marking up technology. It could be marking up data. Every client has the right to know what they're paying, is my view. And agencies should be proactive in providing that. If that meets the contractual agreement with that client and they've signed up to it, that's okay. But there should be the knowledge there. Matt Rowley, caveat emptor rules here are right. There's usually a reason cheap digital media is is cheap. Yeah, I mean, as Amy was just saying so eloquently, like... Well, let's not get too carried away, Matt Rowley. (laughs) Is it a bit early for that? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, like you go into any commercial negotiation or any commercial deal, like you've got to have your eyes open, right? And so number one is you've got to be asking the right questions. And obviously you want to know what those questions are. And so, and that's exactly where sort of ADAPS comes in. So to try and, um, you know, arm you with those questions. The second thing you want to have though is data. 
you know, to understand, you know, what, what does the market look like? You know, what does what everyone buying tend to go for? All those different things. And that's um, an important bit. And the interesting bit is that that kind of loop and that data is finally sort of, you know, is coming through. So the ISBA report we talked about, I think one of those things that sort of opened people's eyes to the report was, yes, there was that gap, but also it was the lack of matching. And it took them 18 months to try and, you know, match between what was sort of bought and what was kind of sold. Because basically it was done in very old-fashioned ways. It was basically spreadsheets at either end that you, try, you know, tried to match up the logs. And where we've got to sort of 18 months, two years on is, you know, work that the IRB Tech Lab has been doing is putting in a bunch of standards in place. So, you know, the open RTB standards. RTB being, by the way, real-time bidding. Exactly. So, you know, basically the sort of auction marketplace, um, which basically now allows you finally, and we're just on the precipice of it, to be able to track, you know, those buys all the way through and finally see, you know, rather than just matching logs at either end, actually having the data of where the buy of that impression, who touched it, how many hands it went through and those sorts of things. And you kind of match all of those things up. And the exciting bit is we're just, we're just on the precipice of being able to do that rather than having to sort of match logs. And the beautiful thing about that then is it arms you not just with the questions that you want, which is what's in ADAPS and which is why everybody should be reading this, um, but then also gives you the data to then arm those conversations when you're asking those questions, which will be brilliant. Dan Stinton, I'm, I imagine at The Guardian, you wouldn't uh, disagree with the notion that uh, digital media has become too cheap. Uh, well, of course, that's what I would say, Paul. But um, look, I think I, I carry this by saying it depends what you're trying to achieve with your campaign. Um, but I think as we've talked about on this podcast many times before, I think um, what I think we've seen is marketers have become probably too focused on the bottom end of the funnel for digital marketing only uh, at the expense of uh, marketing at the top of the funnel. And so you get used to following consumers around the net with CPMs of $1.30. But I think uh, that needs to be balanced with um, some more contextual advertising at the top of the funnel, and, and ultimately that uh, will make the marketing more effective. Amy, $1.30, is that cheap? I'm not going to comment on the price because I think it comes back to, as Dan said, what you're trying to achieve. But I, I do think the conversation needs to move from cost to quality because kind of cost without quality is a bit of a blunt metric. I think it has. Um, Dan may disagree, but I, I look at the discussions we're having both with existing clients and in new business, and there is rarely a cost equation that doesn't come with some sort of quality benchmark. Um, I think there's opportunities to evolve that. I mean, I think we, 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 we kind of feel like we've, we've made progress because we're no longer talking about a blunt CPM that we're talking about viewability, brand safety, ad fraud. Um, but the real questions around business outcome and how we get clients to measure back to that so that we can understand is the $1.30 CPM right or is it $4.30 and drives a better outcome? And and that's the conversation I think we need to be pushing. Do your clients get that, Amy, in, in, in your uh, portfolio at least? And you've got some big ones, right? You've got some big ones, McDonald's, Telstra. As I said, I'm I feel like the conversations I'm having with clients are very reasonable. That They're rarely about cost as a single metric. Cost might be one of the inputs, but it's not one of the outcomes. So um, I think it's a good dis starting point as a discussion, but if the cost isn't driving the result you need, and you know we have this discussion all the time, you spend four times as much and you get a better quality lead or a higher revenue customer, then that's the right call and you need the metrics and parameters around that. But uh, my client base has definitely progressed from a pure cost metric. Martin, what do you make of this so far and, and uh, this notion around cheap media versus effectiveness and quality? I'm in complete agreement with everything that Amy and, and Dan just said. You should always have clear metrics for your campaign based on the objective. Uh, are you driving awareness for a brand? Are you driving people to a website? 
or to drive a sale online, um, the ROI measures you should uh, you, you choose should reflect the outcome you're trying to achieve. And this should be on top of the verification tools that monitor fraud, viewability, and brand safety. You should look at it holistically. Martin, what are you? What is Nestle doing? What have you been doing to address some of these challenges around exactly what you just said, transparency, brand safety, and so forth? I think uh, you've sort of started to move either globally or regionally, I'm not sure you'll tell us, uh, to sort of tier one alliances with tier one sell-side platforms, otherwise known as SSPs. I think that's the case. What, what, what are some of the initiatives you're taking at Nestle? Well, I think, again, if you've read through the, the recommendations from the PDUC ISBA report, it was for advertisers to strengthen or develop their, their direct contractual relationships through the supply chain. And we're doing that. And, you know, I think this is just an example of what we're recommending advertisers to do is to make choices about uh, um, how you increase the transparency and, and the manner in which you uh, you, you, you access the content that you want. For us, it's really important to ensure that at a global level, we're accessing publisher content that fulfills our viewability and fraud standards. And uh, that, that's the basis on which we're developing those relationships. Those sorts of initiatives, Martin, that you're doing with SSPs and beyond, um, I assume that you think that applies to not just global uh, brands and marketers and companies, but to local companies as well. It pans across. Uh, definitely. I think that you know, it depends on the, the, the size and scale of the um, spend that you're putting into it to warrant the, um, the, the, the level of, of direct relationship that you want to build. Otherwise, you know, there's a variety of different options relating to the way in which you manage the relationship um, um, through your agency and the way that, that, that they're doing that work uh, for you and the, and the visibility you've got if you're, you're purchasing um, through, through leaner models. But um, I mean, it's, so it's not going to fit for everyone, but, but if this is a really big part of your investment, then uh, I think you should engage. Well, Amy, part of OMD's initiative to sort of achieve better quality, higher quality uh, inventory or campaign uh, plans is you're, I think you're bypassing uh, SSPs entirely in favour of sort of direct relationships with publishers. Is that the case and why? Yeah, we have about 90% of our buyers have some sort of direct component and won't be a surprise for many who know me, but that's about control. It's about control and visibility. And I think we see our role as uh, the brands we work with agency to ensure that we have full visibility and that we're deciding where those placements go rather than outsourcing it to a publisher or outsourcing it to another provider. That for us means that we have a lot more visibility into the supply chain as a result of that. But it's, it's ultimately about ensuring that we have that visibility to the environments. So how long have you been doing that and what have you seen change as a result of uh, more control, Amy Buchanan? We've been doing it for a while, like I can't really, as long as I can kind of remember. But the um, the big piece for us is that we, we have less brand safety issues. We know the environments that they're appearing in. We have more control over whether they're contextually right. Um, and then from a cost point of view and a visibility point of view, we have transparency. Any sense of, of what that upward swing in cost is as a result of achieving those sort of qualitative measures? Is it up? Is your cost of media up 30, 40, 20, nothing? I don't know. Well, our working media rates, you know, 30% higher than the average, industry average, which across the board, which I think speaks to that. But I think beyond that, because that's in the supply chain piece that we see, if you look at the ISBAR report, it talks to the, the 15% delta of unknown where it's going. Uh, if you're bypassing the SSPs, you have an automatic um, advantage in that 
it, you don't have a big chunk of it disappearing from our side. And, and, and look, for us, we welcomed that report because it, it put it put the it put the microscope on a part of the supply chain that hasn't been discussed about, and it's a positive outcome for us given our strategy at the moment. Dan, are you is the Guardian seeing any evidence of this? We are. We're seeing really strong growth in our direct business. There's a lot more PMPs, there's a lot more PG, there's a lot more efficiency in how you can book digital media, which gives it a real advantage, I think. With those acronyms, Dan, PMPs, private market play, just for the for the audience that may not be as sophisticated as you. That's right, PG, programmatic guaranteed. Um, so effectively, you know, you're leveraging the efficiencies that digital can bring, um, which I think is is much better for for the advertiser because uh, because it means your your dollar will go further. Uh, but at the same time, you're able to ensure that you're getting the right context and brand safety and viewability and all of those things, which are harder to achieve not impossible but harder to achieve in the open marketplace matt what's your your take uh, from the pedestrian group's perspective uh, on this i guess in a way we're not uh, like a like a traditional media business in that you know that we're sort of i guess spots and dots driven we're absolutely not that so you know like 85 percent of my revenue is sort of like integrated so there's content in there there's social there's events there's you know and there's media if you then go into like you know of our 15 odd percent that kind of you would say goes through programmatic channels. We're actually, I think we're almost like 60% of that is programmatic guaranteed, you know, which is a way of transacting basically, but it's still actually kind of hand sold. Like a human still talks to a human and says, this is why we're doing this and, and whatever else. So for those that don't know, what does programmatic guaranteed mean? What is it? So rather than going into an auction and hoping to pick up an open exchange, for instance, exactly, rather than doing that, you basically have a relationship um, with a publisher and you say, hey, I'm going to, I want to buy that specific inventory and I'm, and the publisher says, great, I'll guarantee it at this price. But then what happens is, you, you know, basically then basically the programmatic pipes makes it happen. So it then becomes automated from there. So it delivers the, delivers the deal. Exactly. Now, Dan, so one of the key points out of the PwC is by UK report was that circa 50% of an advertiser's spend gets to publishers as working media. Um, you think it should be higher, actually. You, you're, you think 70% is uh, more, more a better number. Why is that? Well, of course, I think much more of a client spend should go towards working media. But um, again, it's probably in my interest to say that. But I, I guess I just make the point that, you know, the ISBAR report, uh, as Amy referenced earlier, there, there was 15%, I think, of uh, spend was uh, unable to be accounted for. Um, but even taking that aside, even with the balance of 35% there, um, I think markets have to ask themselves, firstly, do they know exactly where that 35% is going? Uh, do they know exactly what intermediaries are uh, taking a cut of that? Um, and secondly, is it driving the value that they think it is? Um, is, is the data targeting um, uh, and brand safety present in that 35%? And if it's not, perhaps it's too high. And of course, I, I would argue that more money should be going toward, towards working media and towards the publishers because I think that ultimately that means you're reaching more people and the campaign's going to be more effective. Amy, 70%, you like that number or not? I actually think it should be a higher number, but I, I don't think that's new news. I think that's the conversation we've been having for the last four years on transparency to the value chain. And I think if a client doesn't know what their value chain looks like in 2020, there's a big issue. Um, but I think what the ISBA report points out, and has been misconstrued by many as, as that 15% as ad fraud, which it's not, what it points out is that outside of the value chain that most clients are seeing, there's another delta beyond that of 15%, which go, is un, unidentified. 
And I think that's the piece that we should be digging into in the next round. Matt, uh, 70%, 50%. I mean, imagine as a publisher, you'd say you like 70, 80, 90, or even we like what Amy's saying even north of that. But as the chair of the uh, IAB, you've got a whole bunch of other constituents in that group which would argue that they deserve a little bit of that too. Yeah, I mean, completely. So there's, yeah, I guess I'm wearing a couple of different hats here. But yeah, as a publisher, you want that working media to be as high as it can and it, and it rightly should be. But then having said that, there are there are other, and I mean, it's that word value chain. There are other people who are adding value. So for example, we now have, we have the exec tech council within the IAB. Um, they actually have a seat on the board now as well, which I think is like an indication of how this whole area is maturing. Like, you know, that we have this conversation that there are people who rightly have a space in the value chain. And that might be because, for example, you're using their data or it might be because you're using their tools to make sure you get viewability or lots of different things that you would use. And I think that any advertiser would go, yeah, I want those things. Well, it doesn't come free. Amy's point, I think is completely right, is you want to understand that, but then if there's still a gap, you want to know what that is and you want to know where that's going. And that's, I think, the thing that came out of ISBA. Right, and that's the bit where you'd go, you know, is 50% going into data fees and targeting all the things that, that the layers that go over the top, is 50% really the, really the right number and the transparency uh, uh, cause will maybe unveil that. Martin, 50, 60, 70, um, please say like 85. That would be great for a publisher like um, for, for Dan and myself who are big, big you know, we're, we're there. Uh, look, we all um, really support a higher share going to the publishers because we need we need quality content being published. And I think this comes down to, you know, I'm in full agreement with everything that's been said. You need transparency in your value chain so you can eliminate the waste that's in it. And once you do that, a higher share will go to the publisher. So, you know, I think that's that's in everyone's best interest. Martin, you might have a little bit more transparency than others in your supply chain. Do you see justification for um, that working media at 50 or where do you sit? Can you tell us where you sit uh, in working media allocation? I think a working media number at 50 is a poor result. And, uh, you know, um, we sure all should be working to, to get it significantly higher whether 70% is the right threshold or whether it should be higher than that um, ultimately comes down to um, the value that other elements of the, of the value chain are providing for you. Um, but and it, and it somewhat also, um, it comes down to your philosophy about the quality of placement that you're after and and, um, and the content you want to associate with that comes back to the, the, the objectives you've got for, for your campaign. Um, where we will always uh, lean towards uh, quality content and uh, we're driven by um, a desire to get um, working media higher. So. Um, I think that's a threshold at 70% that, that, that should be a starting point. I just think we need to repeat that little last line there about five times in this in this podcast, Martin. Great answer. Amy, brand safety is back in the hot seat with Black Lives Matter and, and COVID for marketers. Where are the conversations going with your clients on this front? It's very much a client-by-client discussion. I think you've got different appetites within our client base of risk. And I would say it's beyond a digital discussion. I know that there's a lot of emphasis put on, you know, turning on or off digital media or blacklist, whitelists. But the conversation, particularly in the last six to eight weeks, has been much broader than that. It's been about where do we want to be associated, whether that be TV, digital, and what the risk is in that brand. And I think the nuance to this is is not, you know, do we turn off 
specific subjects and not be present there because there's a risk. I think the nuances is do we have an appropriate message for those environments? And and often these things are happening so quickly that you don't have time to, to create that message that is appropriate. And I don't think that's new news. I was reflecting on it today and thinking about, you know, if you've worked in tourism, when a plane crashes, you automatically pull everything out that's associated with that channel. When you've worked in, um, you know, if there's a hurricane, you look to move messages out that aren't appropriate. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a continuation of that and it's an acceleration of that. But I definitely think it's part of our job to make sure the brands aren't appearing in environments where the message um, is a negative experience for consumers. Well, Dan, you know, earlier on when COVID started to break, there was um, a gr- great debate about how many news sites had, had been blocked because it was seen as too contentious to be adjacent to uh, news content like that. You've got a few frustrations, though, around audience engagement, um, how deep it is and how the social platforms might be treated a little differently to, say, a news media company on this. Uh, you also think, I, th- I think you think, <laughs> that um, advertisers should spend a lot more time uh, whitelisting sites rather than using black t- rather than blacklisting terms. Give us your thoughts on all that. The problem, Paul, is probably because too often I think digital media is treated as a homogenous kind of thing. I understand why there is going to be sensitivity from an advertiser's point of view around advertising, uh, around research and things such as Black Lives Matter on social media because the risks there are high. But I think uh, that's quite different when uh, the news media, such as The Guardian and other publishers, are reporting on this. I think that's a very, very different environment. I take Amy's point. You know, you, I think a lot of the time it's just marketers are trying to catch up with what's happening in the news cycle and making sure that their marketing messages aren't inappropriate in that context. And I, and I completely understand the need for that. But I just think there's been a bit of an overcorrection because, I mean, if you take the coronavirus example, um, we've had larger audiences on digital news sites than ever before. We've had more engagement. I mean, session times, which are just off the charts than ever before. And I think we have to give consumers just a little bit more credit than perhaps some marketers, not all, but some marketers have, because I think, um, you know, at a time when you have an audience really leaning into content, consuming more and more of it than ever before, it is about as engaged an audience as you're ever going to be able to um, hit. And to blacklist terms around that is a fairly blunt instrument, I would say. Um, so I just think, yeah, like my, my, the point that I think I was, I was trying to make earlier is I, I, would, I would encourage marketers to spend more time on whitelisting where they want their advertising to appear and less time on blacklisting terms in a fairly blunt way. Martin, your, your take. Yeah, this is an interesting one. I mean, I think what it does come back down to is um, you, you seriously need to have educated resources in your team or clear responsibilities with your agency partner uh, because brand safety is extremely fluid and you need to be able to make decisions quickly. Um, and look, I uh, respect Dan's point of the frustration of uh, the impact of blacklisting. Um, but I think also brand owners need to have a position as to whether or not their brand wants to be repeatedly uh, present in, a, in what is newsworthy and in, in interesting and informative content, uh, but not might be something that, 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 that ultimately they want to be associated with that particular uh, uh, narrative. And that might be the reason why advertisers are, are, are blacklisting um, um, certain content and, uh, and, and, and certain um, narratives, uh, because uh, honestly, the news cycle can get into such a frenzy uh, that, uh, that, that, that it doesn't become a valuable space for your brand to associate with. So 
um, I've got sympathy with it for the point, but I, I also think that, that, that right now in the midst of the, um, the tension that exists across uh, the news cycle at the moment, the, the, uh, the, the, the strongly held emotions on, on um, really quite um, divergent positions people have got on, on issues means that you've got to be super sensitive to this and, and be aware and make conscious decisions. Um, and that should be a combination of, of, of blacklisting and whitelisting. I think it just means having a very clear position and being proactive. Well, look, we might get time to explore a little bit further, but I, I guess, I mean, I'm with Dan a little in that um, news media and, and the professional publishers are obviously a whole lot, they, they tend to be more broadcast, they're higher profile. And so the adjacency issues around content there uh, surface uh, more quickly than, say, uh, a message that might feed in it might be in an individual social media feed that still has the adjacency but we don't see it we don't see the controversy because it's tend to be more tailored i think that's a discussion we may have time for but matt rally your take on this within the pedestrian group obviously we've got pedestrian.tv and if you want to go and see some spicy content just look at that website right now there will be something on that that will make your you know your eyelashes curl right that's the nature of it my sense is and my feeling is that there's been a blur between brand safety and brand appropriateness where we've said, oh, if I don't like the story, suddenly that's become not brand safe. And I'm not sure about that. I think if the brand that they're going into is appropriate for your brand and what you're trying to get done, I think readers can figure that out. We were talking about the other night. I think you can give uh, readers a little bit more trust in how they understand where they are and why they're there. Amy, take your point on, say, something like a plane crash in Qantas, right? That, that that's, makes sense. But the broader notion here of what Matt's saying and what Dan's saying, uh, what's your take? I buy the concept of brand suitability and we talk about it a lot and I think there is, there's an upstream discussion aware, around what is an appropriate brand fit in terms of environment. On the comment around whether consumers can delineate between a story and a message um, alongside, I'm not sure I'm 100% aligned with that. Um, I think about a lot of the examples where we've had to, you know, pause messaging, pull messaging from broadcast as much as from digital. And the backlash that we've had if we've had a client's ad run in a story on the, you know, the, the network news at night has been huge in social. Like it feeds out of social as soon as it happens. So they are they are seeing and associating that and there's an instant um there's an instant channel for them to broadcast that now. And I think that's what's shifted if we kind of look over time is it used to be you added going to the paper and, you know, the, the comment, the feedback loop for that would take weeks. Now when a consumer sees something that they think is not appropriate, it's instantly it's instantly live and I think that's our responsibility and we spend so much time curating plans for clients on the appropriate environments I think it would be remiss of us not to consider the context that they appear in. Well, true, but is there split standards here, Amy, on uh, this approach to, say, broadcast media and news media? Uh, you say, you know, when, it, when a story light, news story lights up, it goes straight into the into the social feeds. Yeah. Is the, is the advertiser pulling on the social feeds as well? Because there's adjacency issues there that aren't as high profile. And this is, I think, where is there double standards or a split in, in how this is being used? I don't think there's double standards. I think the mechanism to the way you buy those channels is fundamentally different and our ability to control it is somewhat different. So I don't think we're sitting there going, we don't, we want that to run in social. By all means, we're doing everything in our power to stop that contextually appearing in the wrong places. But you buy a lot of social by individual versus environment. So it becomes harder 
um, to control. You can put all the caveats in the world around it. I think the, to answer your question more pointedly, when we have something that hits big time, we nine times out of ten we pause social as well. It's probably the first thing we pause if it makes anyone feel any better, um, because <laughs> because because it's the it's the instant place um and we get sometimes we question whether it's appropriate to do that as well for exactly the reasons you're talking about but i think we have to consider all elements of it but the fundamental difference is you buy the the platforms you're talking about in terms of broadcast you buy through environment socially you buy through audience and and that's the difference dan any thoughts on that I probably echo what Matt said earlier, and that is that we've actually seen trust in news media uh, and traditional media has been eroding for um, really decades um, uh, up until quite recently. And what we've seen since coronavirus has come about, and it probably even started with the bushfires, is that people's trust in news brands like The Guardian or SMH and others uh, has shot right back up again as people have recognised the value of those uh, of those brands and trust the reporting that we are delivering. And I just think that's a fantastic opportunity for marketers to be able to leverage that trust. And I guess Amy and I perhaps might disagree a little bit here, but I, I think a consumer uh, can tell the difference between, you know, it knows that a marketer is not placing an ad next to an individual story uh, on a news masthead. They're placing an ad in that news masthead because they want to reach the consumers that trust that news brand. Just to add, I don't think it means that they don't want to be associated with the publisher either. It's probably the nuance to it. So I think I think the, the argument Dan and Matt make around there's never been more trust in these environments, We I wholeheartedly agree. And I don't think anyone's going, don't advertise with The Guardian or don't advertise with news. They're going, because we have the ability to control and target and be more informed like never before, we're going, well, if we have that choice, is it the right call to put that brand in that specific environment within the masthead? So I, I think there is a, it's nuanced but important. Ultimately, let's wrap this up, Matt. This whole conversation gets us back round to the, the need and depth for understanding from all parts of the market on how the digital game is working. This is what ADAPS is about. Why adopting these practices uh, will make the industry a better place. And you've been involved in it, so I'm sure you're going to say that this is what is exactly what it's going to do. Exactly. Actually, I was involved in the writing of the first of ADAPS 1.0. And um, like literally some of my copy made it through, which I was pretty surprised about um even into 2.0 was it hugely i would have been hugely edited oh, yeah pretty much unrecognizable but you know the underlying tone was there right no look and actually and the actually the section that i was involved in which was kind of like the hot button when we wrote the first one was about viewability like you know you only go back 18 months or so or two years ago and viewability was the marketing maelstrom that we, none of us could escape from right it was this thing and you thought wow how is this ever going to end and i think all of us involved in it was like this isn't the most important marketing issue that's out there, but by God, it got the most, you know, um, airtime. But, you know, you roll through and look, ADAPS, I don't want to put it all, <laughs> I'm not going to put it all down to ADAPS 1.0 solving that. But I think the whole thing that did help put that um, viewability, and it's not like the issue isn't still there, but just people understand it better. They understand its importance and its relevance and and have worked out ways to kind of work around that. And that's exactly what ADAPS is looking to do. And I guess what ADAPS 2.0 does, though, and says, look, there are now different issues that I think people are starting to switch to. I think transparency is massive one right now. We've been talking about it, you know, with ISBA, with the experiment that we're about to kind of put into market where we're going to use those new, new tools. Um, and then I think we'll move on to next, you know, it'll probably be, it'll be around data and consent. 
and ADAPS 2.0 covers all of those things and it, give, and it gives you a starting point. The thing that I'm really thrilled about this time around is the fact that we're on this podcast talking about it. ADAPS 1.0 was a lot harder push to kind of get people to read it, to pick it up. And if I'm honest, our reflection on it was actually it was sort of probably in the publisher and agency areas that people really picked it up and probably in the marketing areas, not so much. And so thrilled to be on this podcast with Martin and everybody else sort of talking about this and raising the profile because I think it can answer a lot of those questions that people rightly have if you just kind of pick it up, read it and engage with it. Well, surely, and to, to wrap it up with Martin, surely the fact that, Martin, you're advocating uh, understanding in this for market is, is a big signal. You at the top of the chain are across this and supporting it. That's the big message here, right? We're delighted to partner with the IAB and the MFA to, to, to get uh, ADAPS out because this is a, the industry as a whole will thrive for it uh, with better knowledge, better consistency, better standardisation. So uh, we're committed to that. We're committed to driving uh, the, the knowledge building and the capability building across the, the marketing community um, so uh, you know it's uh, we, you know we're just really delighted in in in, um, in the progress as an industry we've made so Martin Brown Matt Rowley Amy Buchanan Dan Stinton thank you I am better for this I know a little bit more and uh, that's only got to be good for the universe so stay safe and I think we'll as, as we talked earlier in our in our pre-briefing we'll have to come back on a bunch of subjects and have some more conversations but um, thanks for joining MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.